We're back. It's the Security Weekly News, episode 149, and it's the week of 12 September 2021, and yeah, we were gone, and so happy autumn and all that stuff that sort of happened. Today, Pegasus, Revil Redux, really Pegasus Redux too, Revil Redux, WooCommerce, Kaspersky Reports, Miris, Workers Going Around Security, imagine that, and Litecoin Shock. Uh, all this and Sinan Iren from Barracuda on the Security Weekly News. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. It's the show that keeps you up to date on the latest security news twice a week. Your trusted source for accurate security information and expert analysis. It's time for Security Weekly News. The complexity of cloud infrastructure means every organization's security challenges are unique. Whether your challenge is threat hunting, policy management, cloud workload protection, or all of the above, Uptix helps you quickly identify and eliminate observability gaps in your security programs. Uptix, analytics for the modern attack surface, observability for the modern defender. That's Uptix, U-P-T-Y-C-S. Check them out at securityweekly.com forward slash Uptix for a free trial. All right. Well, Pegasus is back. Um, uh, this was a piece of software that was originally developed by the NSO group in Israel. And it's essentially spyware for Apple products. I mean, that's what it is. And Citizens Lab at the University of Toronto, which is sort of a nonprofit kind of thing, uh, they found that a Saudi activist's iPhone was infected with Pegasus like this week. And so this one, so Pegasus, we remember this from before, but this week uh, when they found it, they found that this was a new, uh, or I guess it was an existent, but it was a new use of a zero-click remote exploit. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically magic. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to hacking, it means, well, you could take over somebody's phone without actually touching it or getting them to do anything. So it's just like, uh, okay, that's pretty scary. So Pegasus can pretty much capture whatever you're doing on your phone, and it sends all that info back to a central controller uh, at NSO. And then the subscribers can access that information on the fly. And there was a lot of controversy about this back in July. Uh, but uh, anyway, according to Citizens Lab, more than 1.65 billion devices are, have been vulnerable to this product, this uh, vulnerability since at least March. So the product was, I mean, it was a really big deal back in 2016 even when they first put this out. And there was a lot of controversy about this showing up on people's phones, who gets to use this. And all of a sudden there were people like activists and academics and journalists who maybe, you know, were saying things about other countries or what have you that were getting this stuff put on their phone and being tracked and maybe, pro, you know, like, having profiles of them and their movements and so forth. The most recent high-profile hit from this spyware, though, were in July uh, when a list of 50,000 phone numbers that came out of the Pegasus Project was released by Forbidden Stories and Amnesty International. So they went in and, and they got access to this. And as you might suspect, the phones, once again, belong to a lot of big shots. There was like 12 uh, nation-state leaders. There was celebrities. There was, you know, on and on and on. And, a lot, and, of course, a lot of these were activist people. 
Um, so NSO Group then got a, came under fire for that, but they basically said they only sell this product to governments, police, and military. And I remember when I was talking about this story back in July saying, yeah, government, there's never any bad governments around. There's no chance the military would misuse it. And, and you know, but they were like, hey, we don't know. You know, so I was like, I, to me, it would have been a better response if they just said, hey, look, you know, we just, we're just a business. We sell it. If you want to use it for bad things, what can we do? But anyway, uh, this is an, the, the current vulnerability is an image processing tool uh, that is in uh, Apple products, and, and they've named it Forced Entry. So Apple patched this on Monday with an emergency patch issuance, and Citizens Lab said, you better update your phone right now. That's a quote. Uh, I, and, and I'm actually going to run, and, and I wrote on here, I'm actually going to run the update when I finish, get finished with this. And I already did that because I put this together and I said, as soon as they finished, I'm going to run the update. I mean, you know, me being a big shot influencer and all, I figured there's probably at least a couple of nation states that want me dead, not to mention other people. But, and there was that incident at the monastery in France with the champagne and well stealing it. And, and oh, I, did I say that out loud? Okay. Come at me, France. Do you even lift Poto? Yeah. Okay. Bring it on. Also, all right, uh, Revil Redux. So Revil had been missing for about two months. So it was like, okay, and, and they sort of vanished, and they did this big attack, and then all, poof, they're gone. Uh, their servers were down. Um, probably Revil wasn't actually missing at all. They were just hanging around in the break room somewhere, you know, waiting for, like, you know, the next hacking event or whatever at the corporate hacking headquarters. But uh, anyway, a Revil representative, <laughs> which I... I, when I, I always read these dark web stories, and I'm just like, it just, more and more it sounds like, you know, it's just like regular corporate life. A Revil representative, like hacker HR or something, answered some questions on their new site, and a new victim was listed there. But the big question everyone had was, was, was how did Kaseya get a universal decryption key that allowed the end of the Kaseya attack back in July? Okay. Well, Flashpoint reported that according to the Revil representative's posts on the 10th of September, and this is a quote, that a programmer, quote, fat-fingered, or as we used to call it, five-finger death punch, um, which is a lot less offensive, uh, but they apparently accidentally released the key generation tool, or they started the key generation tool and leaked it. Uh, the quote, the direct quote was, one of our coders misclicked and generated a universal key and issued the universal decryptor key, along with a bunch of keys for one machine. Yeah, he sleeps with the fishes. No, I, I made that last part up. But according to Advanced Intelligence, who was reporting all this, this is probably not true. Uh, they said the explanation, which sounded kind of weird to me, but they said it was, quote, ridiculous and, quote, makes no sense in how modern ransomware works. And, you know, and it is a blind address called Revil, making outlandish claims online. So, you know, how could that not be valid? I mean, that's how we ended up with people drinking bleach and thinking there are lizard people living under Denver Airport. Really, I mean, advanced intelligence rep Yelisi Bogoslavsky, I, I, nope, not going to do it, not going there, said that they are pathological liars and that they are not as, as he said, they're not nearly as capable as what they state about themselves. So it sounds like one of those hacker slap fight Twitter wars getting ready to kick off between Revil and this Bogoslavsky guy. Um, but the Revil rep did say that they had been offline because they thought one of their former reps had been arrested and the servers might have been compromised. So anyway, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the story about that they use backups to get back online and all this. But they are back, and they'll probably be back in action soon. 
And like, do dark websites have HR reps? Probably. I mean, they customer service and such. Like, da 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 da. We value your business and we'll be with you in approximately one thousand two hundred minutes. Yeah. Remember the good old days when your shopping cart was an unencrypted cookie on your local machine, and you could just go in there and like change the text <laughs> and change the price of things. It had like a a three thousand dollar hard drive is suddenly in your shopping cart for three dollars, and it actually worked. I, I mean, I I didn't do that, but. But, you know, there, there are people who might have done stuff like that if we could identify who they are. Well, it's not that simple anymore, but WooCommerce, which is a WordPress plugin uh, that is used on e-commerce sites, that plugin contains another plugin called Multicommerce that's made by Envato, which allows price setting for international prices. So this is how, when you go to a WordPress site that's selling stuff, it appears in euros or it appears in dollars or whatever. And it also does the conversions of those currencies to the current trading price. So the plugin actually uses a location detection and displays all that and, you know, and what have you. And so assuming you use it that way, which is why I always get prices in like rands or something, uh, you'll never find me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to hide. But anyway, Ninja Technologies Network says there's a broken access control vulnerability in version 2.1.17 and below, which affects the, in, uh, the, the, fixed price, uh, the import fixed price feature. Uh, this is an AJAX function that, that lacks the capability to check. Uh, this, essentially, it doesn't check who put something in there, and as such, uh, anyone can access it. So what you have to do, though, it's not as simple as that old cookie thing I was talking about. The attack means you have to push a CSV file onto the site, which, you know, it is WordPress, so you know, I can't imagine that happening. And then that file can actually be used to change the price of products, and that could get really ugly. And that might be how I got that PlayStation 5 for 175 rand. Not that that really happened either. A report for Kaspersky provided data from 2020 about security incidents that showed 63% of the incidents resulted from, wait for it, poor patching and password management practices. I mean, I fell out of my chair with shock when I saw that. I could not believe that there's people out there that don't patch and have poor password management. But, you know, I've been saying that for a year and a half, so, you know, you've been warned. But as you might expect, zero days were a really small number on the chart since it's a lot easier to credential stuff, brute force. You know, you go guess good old Dragon Daddy 69's password is Dragon. And I couldn't spell Daenerys consistently, so just put Dragon in. Uh, or use, you know, a lot of times you could use old vulnerabilities too, as we've, we've all seen. Brute force incidents rose from 13% of all the incidents reported in the study previously to 31.6% of the incidents in 2020. So apparently we're not, not only not doing better, we're actually doing worse. Um, unpatched exploits were the second largest category of attack with all those older vulnerabilities before 2020 when they were, doing, when they were collecting data uh, being the most common ones. The most popular was CVE, listen to this, CVE 2017, 0144, which is the SMB remote code execution in Eternal Blue. Yep, no kidding. That was their most common patch exploitation. <laughs> so, you know, patch up. Yeah, use MFA, get eight hours of rest and exercise daily in that order. No, no, really, do the patching first. You can exercise when you're dead, really. Yeah. Miris is a botnet that targets a Latvian network equipment brand, Microtik. Uh, so far, the, the Miris botnet has been estimated to contain around 200,000 bots, but there are more than 328,000 additional routers alone out in the world that are subject to this vulnerability. 
The current Miris incarnation is a distributed denial of service engine, but it can be adapted quickly and easily to other other pro, uh, to do other things. But it, right now, it's a distributed denial of service engine that it generates a lot of traffic. Uh, an attack that occurred recently that targeted Brian Krebs uh, hit about two million requests per second. But one of the largest assaults ever, which has ever occurred, is accredited to uh, Miris, hit twenty one point eight million requests per second. And, you know, so that, that's, that's starting to sound kind of ominous. Uh, now, you might expect it to just be the result of a zero day, but nope, it's not. It's a patched vulnerability. Yep, and no one patched their routers. According to Microtik, if you patched up and you reset your password, you probably are not infected. I know it's the word probably in there, but you might be infected. Maybe. Maybe. You could be, but I don't know. But if you use these devices, there is some guidance for detecting Miris on your device, and of course, you need to patch and reset your passwords. Now, 22 million requests per second, which makes my old UDP flooding uh, tool running on an abandoned Dell Optiplex seem kind of slow. Not that I actually did that. It was just a fantasy. You know, that's what those cannibal people always use in a, as an excuse when they get arrested. They always say, oh no, I wasn't really trying to arrange to eat someone on one of those boards. I was really just... You know, I was really just uh, fantasizing about it, and that's why I was a member of humanfleshlovers.com. Yeah. Um, a new study from HP focused on situations IT teams are facing trying to improve cybersecurity for remote workers. Uh, we're going to talk about this more uh, with Sinan in a minute. But uh, in a survey of 1,100 IT decision makers and a survey of 8,443 office workers who are all remote, they found that IT often feels they have to compromise security in order to accommodate the remote workers. Imagine that. And that workers age 24 and younger just flat out rejected cybersecurity measures and like drove because they think the measures are clumsy and unimportant because, you know, deadlines and such. 75% of the teams there said they were definitely sidelined in the interest of business continuity during the pandemic, and 91% of the teams felt, said they felt pressured to compromising security in the interest of business practice. Over half of all the 24 and under workers said that cybersecurity was a hindrance, and 31% said they had bypassed corporate security to get their job done. Not that that shocks me. I was an auditor in New York. Come on. I mean, it was all about how do you go around stuff? Like, we could inspect your electrical system, but, or you can, you know, maybe this way. Uh, anyway, um, Sinan Aaron is the VP of Zero Trust Security at Barracuda. And I thought we would talk about this story a bit because this is one of his uh, particular interests and it's one of the interests of that company. So uh, I, th I think we've all been sitting there trying to, to, to do something and just said, you know what? I'm just going to use the admin password just this once. Uh, you know, I mean, so so welcome, Sinan, and uh, glad to have you here. Glad to be on the show, Doug. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, um, ha have you ever have you ever had that experience where you've been you've been pressured to, uh, you know, like, look, I, I we'll fix it later. We just got to get this up and running by Friday. So just turn turn the rules off in the firewall. Pretty much every Thursday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the way everybody is. I, mean, every, I think there's nobody who's a developer or a security person who has not been pressured to say, just get the email back working. Okay, we'll worry about all that fancy schmancy hacker stuff later. So just get the email back up, and whatever it takes, just do it. Like, could you sign this saying that? No, just do it. Yeah, I mean, right. I saw oh, it a lot course. as an auditor. Yeah. I mean, business continuity does trump uh, security. Uh, that, 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 that makes a ton of sense. There's nothing I would say... Uh, new information in that. However, I do want to uh, highlight that this um, 
this attitude uh, towards dunking on the millennials and the Gen Zs as, you know, as being insensitive to security controls that business deploy, uh, or, you know, they're going around finding bypasses. Well, maybe we should take a hard look back at the security tooling itself, right? Are we building technology that enables them, that actually empowers them, helps them to be more productive, you know, helps them with actually IT-related workflows rather than, you know, uh, 15, 20-year-old old, you know, methodology of getting roadblocks in front of them, right? So that perhaps, you know, the cybersecurity ISVs need to look back instead of saying that the Gen Zs and the millennials are going around and, you know, uh, you know, bypassing security controls. Maybe there's something wrong with the controls. Well, yeah, right? I mean, secu security is supposed to help, right? Not hinder. And I mean, we've exactly. all been there. I mean, I'm there every day. I get, I, I have clients and they're like, I'm sorry, you can't have this file. You can't put this file. I mean, I'm like, it would be so much more efficient if I put this file in this other machine and didn't have this little tiny laptop. And they're like, I'm oh, sorry. Nope. Can't do it. Can't do it. And then I, I admit I've been tempted. <laughs> that, that, that's right. And, you know, I've been in, in cybersecurity for over 20 years now. And, and I found out that the most successful cybersecurity companies do actually enable uh, new use cases, right? And they help the end users, the admins, these, uh, the IT ops, the SecOps teams to be more productive, uh, to basically automate some of this labor intensive t tasks, uh, you know, help help with uh, streamlining their day to day workflows, right? So, so it's not necessarily a roadblock if you get it right. It, you know, there's no reason why security tooling shouldn't be like the consumer apps, right? End user facing cybersecurity tools should be more like consumer. It doesn't matter if they serve enterprise, SMB or mid-market. Uh, there's, there's a big opening there. And I think uh, vendors who see through that is going to, you know, make it make it a, a, a big impact with the new generation coming into the labor force. And, and that got really pushed to the forefront with the, uh, with the, with the pandemic. You know, I mean, I think I, I, I know and I have clients and I have people who call me and, and, you know, when they started sending people home, it was just, you know, all bets are off. You know, it was like, we got to keep the company running, uh, take all that down. We're not worrying about it. We're not going to do that. And I mean, I, I guess all that kind of leads us back to, to zero trust, right? I mean, is that that's really where that the zero trust theory stuff starts to come in. Would, would you mind, I, I know that's one of your specialties, so would, would you mind just telling the, the listeners like a little bit about what, what is zero trust? I mean, I know some of you know what it is, but, but just for some people who don't. Sure, I mean, it is essentially at the very core is uh, continuous authentication, you know, basically attesting to the end user's identity, but also continuous authorization, meaning do you have explicit rights to access this part of application, the set of data? What it means is that if you're part of the HR group, well, you, you get to have access to the HR database. You can look up salaries, et cetera, right? If you're part of the finance, you get the access to a certain you know, uh, file share, right? So it is uh, explicit access to whatever is granted to you, you're authorized, and then continuously verifying who you are. The best, uh, I think, uh, analogy I heard is basically get, gaining access to an airport terminal, right? The first thing they do is they check your identity. They attest that who you say you are, your identity, your ID card matches your plane ticket. The next thing is, of course, you need to get authorized. Okay, is your flight today? Are you on the right terminal in the right gate? Well, authorized tick. Well, it doesn't stop there. There's one additional step is that they put your luggage and carry-on through the x-ray. And that's basically the uh, what we refer to as the attribute-based access control. You basically check the device's security posture, whether it's a healthy device with the patches like you were talking about deployed. Uh, does it have disk encryption? Does it have endpoint security? And then you'll grant access. So the same thing. You have your carry-on. It goes through the x-ray. Well, now you're 
actually assumed to be secure because we looked into you, therefore you can't get access to your gate. So I think that's kind of the best analogy. Check the identity, uh, authorize whether you have you have the right to be there, and then go through the X-ray machine to see if you're if you're uh, you know if you're okay, if your posture stands, and then let them through. I that that is a really good analogy. I like it. So be, I, being older than you, um, I grew I grew up in a world where I controlled everything. As a sysop, I was you know I, I was the iron fist in an iron glove, and uh, with spikes even like a really irony glove with lots of big spikes on it. And for us to do something like that was very simple because I controlled all my users. They were all in one place. They all went through one authentication process, and I controlled it. So I could delete them. I could block them. I could do all these things. But that's, that's not really the way of today. So how, how do we get people to move from our, what is, I think, that still that old mindset? So I think a lot of companies are still sitting there where I was 30-plus mm -hmm. years ago with this everything's right there in one central spot and I've got my you know iron fist wrapped around it but that's not really true and when we sent everybody home it became even less true than ever so you've got all these these threat vectors coming into your networks from all over the place from the cloud from local from VPNs how, how do we get to what you were just talking about how do we get to a, a better place where companies would have something like that Right. You, you, you basically controlled and operated a secure perimeter, like a corporate mm -hmm. perimeter, and you were the benevolent dictator, right? You had the controls. You, you dictate how somebody's authenticated, authorized, what are the security criteria, what are the policies. But of course, now with everybody, uh, you know, distributed, decentralized uh, applications and, and, you know, they, they, you know cloud, cloud, uh, public cloud becoming very more, very dominant, but even more so SaaS applications becoming the main workhorse, you are losing that uh, perimeter-centric controls, right? Uh, so the, the best approach that is in, in, in practice today and is growing, you know, support is basically zero trust uh, network access, right? Uh, zero trust control. So essentially at the core of it, you uh, turn the perimeter notion upside down. There is no more perimeter. Uh, everybody's distributed, everybody's decentralized. Even if they are inside the office network, you still consider them to be untrusted, right? No matter where they are, they're untrusted. And hence, going back to the earlier analogy of continuously authenticating them and continuously authorizing them and continuously looking into their security posture through telemetry collection before granting them access to a company uh, crown jewel, a valuable application or a data set, right? So everybody's untrusted. There is no more perimeter. You get continuously authenticated. You get continuously authorized. You get continuously assessed for your security posture. Then you gain access. I think that's the way you go around uh, with, you know, with the evolving world. Which sounds a lot like what we used to do. I like how you call me benevolent. I was not a benevolent dictator. I was, I was, I was a vicious, <laughs> petty, whimsical dictator, but but I, I mean, I, that, that really is kind of getting back to that. It's just that, that perimeter that existed on the mainframe is now expanded to be the whole world. So it, it's, it's really the same problem. I mean, so where do you see that evolving? I, I mean, I mean how, obviously people aren't doing that. I, I mean, they, they've, and, and the pandemic, I think, put a big stumbling block in a lot of security measures that were coming about. But it also drove a lot of stuff forward. Where do you think that goes in the future? I mean, is that going to become a standard or a rule? I think so. What I see is uh, the most transformational change, of course, besides migrating to public cloud, uh, is going to be around um, building an identity fabric uh, to 
to basically enable access. And what I mean mm -hmm. by that is we talk about identity in the context of users, but there's a lot of other components to this equation, right? We have uh, we have IOTs, we have applications, we have devices, right, endpoints. Uh, so I think identity is become is going to become ubiquitous across all these uh, you know uh, components. Uh, so essentially, you're going to have service identity that, you know, a, a database, a web server, an application server is going to have its own identity and it's going to get authenticated and authorized into accessing another application or another site in perhaps in a different uh, public cloud provider or in a different region or a different availability zone. Right. So we are going to essentially take this notion of identity and access management and abstract it to a point that everything is identified, authenticated, authorized because before they can access uh, you know, other parts of your network or other parts of your application or devices can communicate with each other. Essentially, identity is going to become the most important enabler for connectivity and security. I, I think that's, I mean, I think that's already starting to happen. I mean, I, I know there's some stories recently from China about they're starting to put restrictions around, you know, kids use it, kids playing video games, a big story. Right. And one of the things that they mandated which, speaking of dictators, uh, one of the things they mandated in China was just that you could no longer be anonymous, that, that you had to actually have a real identity. You had to actually, you know, like this identity fabric. So I, I agree with you. I think that we're going to see some kind of movement towards more identification of people and less anonymity of devices and all these kind of things. Because right now, it's scary if you look, even you look at a home network and you go, wow, what's that? I mean, I look at my home network all the time and I, and there'll be stuff there. I'm like, what is that? I, I get the Mac address and I go, uh, what, you know, and I find out, oh, it's, you know, I mean, it's not something illicit, but it's just something, oh, my daughter brought this home and plugged it in the network. And it's like, okay, I didn't know what that was. You need to let me know this stuff when you plug things in. <laughs> I mean, I mean, do you think that that's one of the big challenges in the next three or two or three years is going to be to try to transition to something like that? That's right. I mean, we are doing things by, you know, if you think about it, by network and IPs and ports, you know, like the, the classic uh, firewall approach or a Steven approach to, to, to network security, right? Uh, but I think that's going to get completely abstracted. Network is not going to matter. It's just going to be a conduit. One, and then we're going to start building essentially controls and policies based around identity. Okay, it makes sense for this particular device identified as, you know, attested and identified as, you know, service A can have access to service B because there's a you know a, a natural graph that assigns those access rights to this particular service to this particular uh, gadget or to this particular data set right so once identity is abstracted away from network we move away from securing things with network ranges I think identity is going to give us a lot better fidelity and and, and robust security controls uh, yep. to secure our our everyday yeah I, I completely agree. Well, thank you, Sinan and Barracuda, for being here. If you want to learn more about Barracuda, please visit securityweekly.com slash Barracuda. Thanks, Sinan. Thanks, Doug. Uh, all right. Uh, and finally, a fake press release from Walmart. So it was fake, so it wasn't actually from Walmart. said that the giant retail chain would start accepting Litecoin, and the value of the cryptocurrency went up 35%. On the market yesterday, so this was in the morning. There was this fake news press release that said from Walmart. Uh, real quickly, people noticed that the domain on the email was wall-mart.com instead of walmart.com without the dash. 
So, you know, whatever happened to the days when all the off-brand names were porn sites? I, I mean, anymore, you know, now who knows? But anyway, shortly thereafter, and probably right after whomever made the press release sold all their Litecoin for $237 per coin, the value of Litecoins dropped back to $177 per coin, where it had been trading for a long time. It's really the oldest stock market trick in the book. Long before cryptocurrency, this was a thing. Back in the 50s and 60s, they had pumping dump scans that were done with phone banks and all kinds of stuff. I think there was even a story arc on the Sopranos or something about that where they were pumping and dumping stocks with phone calls. Really? Well, thanks, Sinan. Thanks for joining us today on Security Weekly News. I'll be back on Friday with the Security Weekly News wrap-up show. Please get your shots. Really, please. 